Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Well, good morning. My name is Kyle Burkholder. I'm a pastor here at Covenant Church and one of our seven elders. And uh, being an elder is a great privilege and it's a, a great honor and it's also a pretty weighty job. And, and I wanted to let you know this because one of our elders, uh, John Cuckler, is here today and he is up for reaffirmation. It's, we call it a re-election if you want, but every four years, uh, there's two four-year terms that we would elect an elder for, affirm an elder and a vote for. So for our members, this is just for our members, if, uh, if you didn't get your email a couple weeks ago, you go back and look through those various folders where that could have landed in, you're going to get another one this week, and that'll give you all of the details on uh, how we're going to do the affirmation vote for John in the coming weeks. And so I wanted to put that back in front of you, remind you to go check those emails. They'll be coming out. And then in the next couple of weeks, there'll be ways for you to vote in person and online. And so uh, that's there for you. Let's move on. Uh, today, we have a, a long way to go. We got we to gotta fly through some stuff today because we are uh, back on the journey with Jesus. Some of you have uh, been here for a little bit, and you may recognize that we have had a sermon series called The Way. Others of you are just joining us, and you say, well, this looks fresh and new. Uh, don't be deceived. We started back in July of 2020. A pandemic was three months old. We were just figuring out what was happening. We did 17 weeks of the way. What we decided to do back then was just walk with Jesus. The world seemed to be falling apart. There were uh, all kinds of divisions and distractions. There was uh, fighting and political things happening. And I said, what, what if we just walked with Jesus? And let's just focus on him and see what happens. So we did 17 weeks there. We picked it back up in 2021. We did 18 more weeks. So um, we're back. So we're just going to keep walking with Jesus. I think that's sort of what we want to do around here. So if this is a, a lesson for anybody, what we want to do is just walk with Jesus. Um, this is what the way is about. It's a deep dive into uh, what it means to live a purposeful life following Christ. So the world continues to tempt us into uh, every momentary cause, every ancillary issue to make that our main thing. And our main thing is always going to be the main thing. Uh, we're about Jesus. And um, so as division in our society becomes a distraction, we just run back to Christ. Uh, so we're going to walk with him and sit with him. Today we pick up in Luke 19. So we got up as far as Luke 19. We're going to pick it back up. The context here is Jesus is entering Jerusalem. This is four days before the Passover where he's going to be arrested and crucified. And what we're going to see today, today is really the crashing together of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth crash together today. And so Jesus has sent two disciples to untie a donkey for his entry into Jerusalem. We pick up the story there. Scripture says they brought the colt, this donkey, to Jesus. And then throwing their coats on its back, they helped Jesus get on. And he, as he rode, people gave a grand welcome throwing their coats on the street right at the crest where the Mount of Olives begins its descent, the whole crowd of disciples burst into enthusiastic praise over all the mighty works they had witnessed. Blessed is he who comes, the king in God's name, all's well in heaven, glory in the high places. And yet some of the Pharisees in the crowd told him, Teacher, get your disciples under control. But he said, if they kept quiet, the stones would do it for them, shouting praise. So we pick up the story here as Jesus has done most of his ministry in kind of far-flung places. He's, 
Jesus didn't uh, do his ministry in New York City and Los Angeles. He did it in, in frozen swamps like Bowling Green. He did it in the far-off places in the not-so-popular, not-so-crowded. That's where he did all of his ministry. And yet Jerusalem is the center of everything, and that's where kings go to claim their kingdom. And he's coming in, and they bring him a donkey. We think, and have probably been taught, that Jesus rides in on a donkey to showcase his humility. We think it's his humility that brings him in on a donkey, because we think of a donkey, that's kind of an idiot animal, isn't it? Like, oh, well, donkey. You couldn't find a horse for the king of the universe? You had to bring a donkey. So we look at this, and we go, what a guy, what a man of the people. How, how humble. I was listening, uh, I was reading a book, uh, there's this book about the 90s out, and Kurt Cobain was like uh, Nirvana, he was like the big uh, rock star of the 90s, and his wife went and bought a Mercedes, and he made her turn it back in to go back to driving the old used, like, 20-year-old Volvo they had because it was bad for his image. Because he needed, he's like, no, no, go buy, get back to the old beater we drove because if we drive the nice stuff, we'll lose our street cred. And so we see this, and we're like, yeah, this is what Jesus is doing. He's like, he's keeping his humility, right? Nope. No, he's not. Horses, horses, people rode in on horses. When a king rode in on a horse, a horse is an instrument of war. It's powerful, it's strong, it's an instrument of war. So a king riding in on a horse would have been bringing war. But donkeys, donkeys were also used in ceremonial ways. Donkeys were used for kings in ceremonial ways. They, while the horse was for war, the donkey was a symbol of peace. And so Jesus is riding in on a symbol for a reason. If you go back to King David, in in 1 Kings 1, David instructs the high priest to go get a donkey ready for Solomon to ride in on so that Solomon can begin his reign as king and bring great peace upon the land that had been ravaged by war. So this is not new. This is what kings do. If a king is coming to bring war, he comes in on a horse. If he's coming to bring peace, he comes on a donkey. So it's not necessarily about his humility. It's telling us something more important. That in this entry, in this kingdom entry, Jesus is coming as a peace bringer. He doesn't always come as a peace bringer. You can flip ahead in your Bible to Revelation 19, and Jesus rides in on a horse. Why? Because in Revelation 19, it says he's coming to bring judgment, to separate hell and heaven. He's coming to to bring a sword. But here, he's coming to be a unifier. He's riding in as the prince of peace, as a man bringing a bridge between earth and heaven. He's, he's crashing in upon them so that he might reunite them. Matthew and Mark say that they threw coats as they waved palms. They threw coats on the ground and they waved palms in the air. John says they waved palms as well. This is a king's entrance. Palms were a symbol of victory. They were also used in festivals. In, in the festival of the booths, they would wave the palm branches and the, the rustling of the branches sounded like rain and they would shout for God to bring rain from heaven, to bring salvation upon the people because in his agrarian people, rain meant food. Food meant life. Save us, bring your rain, is what they would shout. And so as they wave palm branches and they throw their coats before Jesus, they are declaring him king and they are essentially saying, you are here to save us what they think he's saving them from is Rome, is the occupation, is the oppression. The king of heaven arrives, and the people of of earth misunderstand him, or they reject him. The Pharisees in this area, you hear them already, hey, tell your disciples to keep it down. The Pharisees are worried, aren't they? The Pharisees are concerned that their meager power and their kind of worthless religious thing they've carved out, their little corner of this Roman Empire— This Jesus is threatening to undermine that. And so what they do is in in hoping that he 
calms down and quiets down, they can keep their power. And in doing so, in trying to hold on to what they have, they miss that the Lamb of God has come. Do you ever wonder where the Lamb of God, what's the Lamb of God? Why the Lamb of God? What does that even mean? So what we're going to do is put a few things together here, and this is going to be a little bit of mental math, but we've got to put a few things together. Jesus rides in, the scripture says, on the, the four days before the Passover is when he rides in. Four days before Passover was, was what was known in the culture as Lamb Selection Day. Lamb Selection Day, it was like on the calendar. It's right next to the soccer tournament you have this weekend. It would have said Lamb Selection Day. Because every year on, on Passover... That's when the lamb was sacrificed, the unblemished lamb. This goes back to the Old Testament when they would, they would sacrifice a perfect lamb and then they would put the blood on the doorpost and that was how God knew to pass over this house. His, his, his wrath would be withheld from that house for the day. And so Jesus rides in to Jerusalem as a bringer of peace on lamb selection day. This is not an accident. He is raising his hand and going, I am the lamb. I am the lamb of God. John, uh, John the Baptist called him that. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. He says that in John 1. You can go back and read that. John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God, and people went, What? What would that even mean? And here Jesus is bringing that to fruition, going, I'm riding in, and it's Lamb Selection Day. More than that, Jesus rides into Jerusalem. There's, there's lots of gates. Dwight, would you throw that uh, map up on the screen? There's all these different gates, uh, to, ways to get into to Jerusalem. You see the Mount of Olives on the right. It says that's where he was spending his evenings. And then it says he came in through the Sheep Gate. What we're told through Scripture is Jesus entered, Jesus entered Jerusalem through the Sheep Gate. He could have come in through any gate he wanted to. He chose to come in on Lamb Selection Day, entering in through the Sheep Gate, which is the very gate that they would have paraded in, their selected lambs. The families, each family would have gotten their lamb and they would have brought that lamb in to be sacrificed by the priest. The priest would then sacrifice the lamb and that would happen on Passover. And so Jesus is deciding to come in, not just come in as the lamb of God, not just come in um, on lamb selection day, but come in through the very gate that in the next few days people would be bringing their sacrificial lambs in. In Exodus it says this, this goes back a long way. Exodus 12 says, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month, when all of the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. What is this saying? This is saying on the tenth day, lamb selection day, you, you grab your lamb and you keep it nice, you keep it all unblemished, and then on the fourteenth day on Passover, you would go ahead and, and bring it in for slaughter. Every family was responsible to do this if they wanted to avoid the wrath of God for another year. Jesus enters through the sheep gate and says, I'm the lamb. And I show you the map to show you that this is real life. These are actual places. These are historically verified things. This is not a nice story or a religion. This is not a, a, a set of kind of beliefs and spiritual ephemera that we're trying to pull together and tape together and make a, a, a life system out of. This is none of those things. This is a real person fully God and fully man, riding in to claim his kingdom that happened historically, verified by witnesses, and you can go and see where it happened. These are big things happening in front of us. It's overwhelming. Not only is he the king, but he's the lamb. Not only is he the ruler, but he's the sacrifice. And he's not hiding who he is in this moment. He's claiming to be exactly who he is, and still, people miss it. 
Jesus comes in truth and power today. Still, Jesus rides into our lives today. Still, Jesus is every bit as real and true and alive and active today. And we'd rather he make us rich or give us control or help with our agenda. We'd rather make him do what we need. We, we kind of Pharisee him, don't we? Hey, can you just, uh, that teaching runs against the thing I want to do with my life. That thing you're telling me about loving my enemy, that thing you're telling me about, about how I'm supposed to live my life, that goes against the, the little power I'm trying to build over here. Can you just, can you quiet down for a minute? And when he doesn't do our bidding, when Jesus doesn't do what we want him to do, the danger is we not only miss him as king, but we crucify him all over again. We have to keep moving. Jesus then makes his way into the temple. It says he comes in through the sheep gate and he makes his way into the temple. So follow me there. We'll see what he's up to in Luke 19, 45. Scripture says, going into the temple, he began to throw out everyone who had set up shop, selling everything and anything. And he said, it is written in scripture, my house is a house of prayer, and you have turned it into a religious bazaar. The temple was full of cheaters and scoundrels. Their excavations have shown scales and weights that are, are improperly marked so as to cheat the people coming into the marketplace to buy different things. But remember, I said, this is heaven crashing into earth. This is the collision of two things. Where the king of heaven takes up residence, corruption and consumptive worship cannot exist. What we need to see is where the king of heaven comes to take up residence, corruption and consumptive worship cannot exist. The temple is for God and God alone. And so Jesus comes in to rid it of anything that isn't holy. This is a wake-up call for us if we're paying attention. You are the temple and the Holy Spirit lives within you. The new temple, the new temple, Jesus has been resurrected. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He says he's here to live inside of you. He's here to live among you. He's here to take up residence in you. So what's the temple now? It's not a place. It's not a building. This, this, this room is not holy. It's full of holiness because it's in you. And so you are the temple. The king has residence in you. You were designed to hold and display his glory. And what did we just say? Where the king of heaven takes up residence, corruption and consumptive worship cannot exist. And so if heaven is crashing in today, and if we take stock of what we're seeing here happen 2,000 years ago, when we, we replay it in our midst today, we begin to look for the places where corruption and consumption has turned what is holy into something less. What was intended to be holy into a casual shrug, what was intended to be holy into just a part of my life, what was intended to be holy into something less than what God designed it for. So Jesus enters, and if we're paying attention we have to start asking the questions of Jesus entering and what tables is he overturning in our lives? What old ways are you clinging to? What secret places are you holding on to? What stuff are you keeping in the space that Jesus has designed for himself? And if we see anything in this little vignette, we see that Jesus won't allow it. He won't have it. He's not interested in, in sharing space. He's not interested in renting a booth inside the temple of your heart. He's not interested in that. He won't be satisfied with a carved-out corner amidst idols and secret hid, hidden pleasures. He's not interested in being a part of your life. Checks the religious box. Jesus says, forget that. And he flips the table over. And he goes, you want me or you don't want any of it? He wants you holy. He wants all of you. What tables is Jesus turning over inside of you and inviting you to reject so that you might accept him? Keep moving. 
From then on, it said he taught each day in the temple. So, so Passover is coming. Passover is when the Last Supper happens. What happens after the Last Supper? Jesus goes to pray. He's arrested. He's crucified on Passover, on that Friday. And, and this is just a couple days ahead of that. And so Jesus, it says, he keeps on teaching in the temple every day. He, he knows what's coming. And he knows his followers have a pretty steep hill to climb in the days to come. And so he's teaching them, he's teaching them, he's teaching them. It's kind of like you know, if you knew your last day on earth was Friday, you would make the, the next few days pretty powerful. You would be passing along everything you knew to the people you love. You'd be telling people where the keys to the safe were, and you'd be trying to give them all your life wisdom. You would go, hey, there's some urgency here. That's what we see with Jesus. The high priests and the leaders confront him, and they begin to question his authority. Who let you teach in the temple? Who gave you the right to come in here and talk like this? Luke chapter 20, verse 3, Jesus answers that. He says, first, let me ask you a question. About the baptism of John, who authorized it, heaven or humans? And they were on the spot, and they knew it. And so these accusers, they pulled back into a huddle, and they whispered, if we say heaven, he'll ask us why we didn't believe him. If we say humans, the people will tear us limb from limb, convinced as they are that John was God's prophet. And so they, his accusers, agreed to concede that round to Jesus, and they said they didn't know. So Jesus said, then neither will I answer your question. They begin to, to accuse him. They try to bring in other side things. They kind of kind of sneak in the side door and say, well, let's get him off his game. Let's ask him about something that doesn't actually matter right now, but let's see if we can just trip him up. The king has come into the city. This is a holy week. He's bringing a new kingdom. He's teaching in the temple. He's not here to entertain their silly resistance. He says, oh, you have a question? Let me ask you a question. They can't answer it. He goes, I'm not answering yours either. And he just keeps on teaching. He says, I'm not here for your games. I'm not here for your little resistance. I'm not here to spar with troublemakers who decide they have little ways to trip me up. I'm not doing that. The kingdom's at hand. Jesus is saying kingdom urgency means we don't quibble over the little stuff. As a people, we uh, Americans might be the most in a hurry people ever created. We are just always doing something. And if we're not doing something, we take out our phone and we pretend we're doing something. We're digitally doing something. I got to do something. I got to keep moving. I got to be in a hurry. It makes us feel important. It's, it's manufactured urgency, but it's not real urgency. We don't actually have anything coming up. If I don't get to the grocery store today, what? You have 6,000 calories sitting in your pantry right now. You, would, you could eat for days and never have to blink it. Yeah, but I got to get there. Got to get there. We get caught up in, in the urgency of our day, and yet we don't have any real urgency for the things that matter. We get caught up in, in the nonsense of our culture. We get caught up in answering the skeptic and entertaining the resistance. How many of us have spent time reading and, and debating, even in our, just in our minds, the nonsense that comes through Facebook or, or this news channel versus that one or this political viewpoint versus that one or this worldview versus that one. And we sit and we just cycle on these things. We just sit with the nonsense. We sit with the resistance. We quibble with the questions. And they're just distractions. Hey, let me ask you something that's not about the main thing. It's like if you sat down to dinner and you're sitting down to dinner and the, the waiter comes over and you say, I think we're ready to order. And he goes, I have a question though. Why do you think those fire hydrants are yellow instead of red? Be like, no, we want to order. Like, this is, that's not what this is. This is about this other thing. You're trying to bring it, what, what does that even mean? And nobody would be like, well, let's have a good conversation with that while we're in this restaurant. We would just go, you're strange. Can we see the manager? Also, I'd like, you know, order your thing. 
They're bringing him odd questions. They're bringing him odd accusations. They're coming in from the side with these, these not essential, unimportant. And Jesus goes, I'm not here to quibble. Cut out the nonsense. Quit busying yourself with dead ideas, with dead pursuits, with dead people. In essence, Jesus is saying, get busy living, right? The old Shawshank Redemption line, get busy living. You can spend your life getting busy dying and just entertain all the nonsense around you, or you can get busy living and see where life is and chase that. So Jesus says, don't want to answer me? That's fine, I'm not answering you either. So he turns around and he tells another story. And this story is about corrupt farmhands. He just keeps going why we're going to keep going. And these corrupt farmhands, basically the story goes like this. It's an assault on religion is what he's doing. But there's a, a vineyard owner, like a master of the farm, and he's away. He represents God. And, and what happens is the servants who are there working the farm, they kind of sense an opportunity. And so the vineyard owner sends some others to come and, and retrieve part of his profit, to get some of the fruit to bring back to him, to, to take his share and it says that the, uh, the farmhands that are there on the property, they start killing these servants. They, they beat the servants and send them away. They beat the servants and send them away. They beat the servants and send them away. And so the, the vineyard owner says, well, I'm going to send my beloved son instead. Maybe they'll listen to him. Maybe they'll respect him if I send him. And so the vineyard owner sends his beloved son, and what do they do with him? They kill him so that they can keep the profit, so they can keep the power, so they can own the farm because they feel like it's theirs. The Pharisees, who he's talking to, he's calling them corrupt. He's calling them crooked. He's saying that they are killing Jesus because they're intimidated that God is coming to reclaim what was already his. You're religious people, he's saying. You're religious people. You love your religion, and you forgot that it isn't about God anymore. You love your religion so much that you hate God. You get so caught up in the rules of religion that you didn't even realize that somewhere along the line you threw God out of it. He's telling them, you love your position and your power too much. And the result is, when the Son of Man comes, when the beloved Son of the Father comes, when Jesus himself comes to bring in the kingdom, you're going to kill him. It's a warning to the Pharisees in the day, but it's a warning to us. It's a warning to faithful people who get a taste for power. And we have to be careful not to be people who would use God for our own glory. Not to be people who would use God for our agenda or our own positional power or our own advancement. He's talking to the Pharisees, but we can take that too and go, we got to be careful that our lives are being poured out for God, not to leverage God for our lives. And you begin to look at these little vignettes, these little stories Jesus is telling, and we start piecing them together, and we see that Jesus is coming to clean house. Jesus is emptying the temple of religious people. He's emptying the temple of the people who are in it for themselves. He's emptying the temple of the people who aren't there for the kingdom. And he's aware. Jesus isn't dumb. Jesus is aware that they're clinging to power. Jesus is aware that it will actually cost them his life. They are going to kill him because of the vulnerability that he's creating in them. But he also knows how the story will end. He also knows that heaven is, cra heaven is crashing in on earth. Heaven is coming and crashing in on earth, and heaven wins. So Jesus tells the Pharisees that they are being overturned and swept out and dismissed. But they're persistent. Luke 20, verse 20. Watching for a chance to get him, they sent spies who posed as honest inquirers, hoping to trick him into saying something that would get him in trouble with the law. 
So they asked him, teacher, we know that you're honest and straightforward when you teach, that you don't pander to anyone, but teach the way of God accurately. So tell us, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They won't give up. So they're saying this, we get it. You're here to show just how faithful you are to God alone. And here's the trap. It's a really clever trap, actually. They've set this clever trap because paying taxes grows the wealth of man. And you just told us how only God is deserving of riches and glory. Paying taxes grows the wealth of this this kingdom that is invalid, this kingdom that is an oppressive kingdom, this kingdom that has nothing to do with you. Are you saying we're supposed to enrich the kingdom that has nothing to do with you? Or should we withhold from that and be lawbreakers? Because that can't be it either. And it's a perfect trap. They're playing his game against him. Jesus has an impossible choice. Do we worship Caesar by giving him our wealth or do we break the law? So Jesus basically says, toss me a coin. And he holds it up and he says, whose picture is this? Give Caesar what is his and give God what is his and try as they might, they couldn't trap him into saying anything incriminating. His answer caught them off guard and left them speechless. Jesus continues on with his kind of, he's like, you think you're clever. Watch this. Toss me a coin. Whose inscription is this? Give it back to him. It's his, clearly. What's he here to do? He's telling them again, I'm here to bring heaven crashing into earth, to start the avalanche of light that obliterates darkness, to bring life that undoes death. So he looks at the coin and he says, give it to the one in whose image it's made. What's the implication there for you? Give it to the one in whose image it's made. What is the inscription upon you? What does the Bible say about how you were created? What does the Bible say about the inscription upon your life? That each and every one of us was made in the image of God. We were made in the image and the likeness of God. You and I were made in his image and his likeness, in his love and in his community. We were made in his image. So he holds the coin and he says, give to Caesar what's rightfully Caesar's. And the implication that it holds out is give to God what's rightly God's. The line that we wait for is give to God what's rightly God's. And we go, well, how do we know what belongs to God? Well, whose inscription is upon it? Whose thumbprint is upon it? Whose image is it made in? Give to God what's his. One last time, he's made a separation, hasn't he? Jesus keeps creating these little moments where he's bringing heaven down to earth, and he's saying, it's not this, it's that. It's not this, it's that. You have to be careful. It's not this, it's that. He says, the stuff of earth can stay with earth. I'm not concerned with the dust. The stuff of earth can stay with earth. I'm not concerned with the dust. Jesus is walking in. He's the king. And they continue to try to bring him trivialities. And he says, I'm not worried about it. It's falling away. The stuff of heaven is crashing in. And that's the concern. That the king of the universe comes not concerned about whether you pay taxes. He comes concerned about the tax collector. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew's with him. Matthew's watching this go, oh, that's why I follow this guy. That's why I follow him. We have to return to a place of awe when we see Jesus dealing with this. We have to go, one, that's why I follow this guy. Can't be tripped. He can't be, he can't be tricked. He's, he's so high above. He's so much more holy. He's so much more clever. He's got all the different ways of going about these things. That's why I follow this guy. Can you imagine? He's riding into town claiming to be king, and they're going, oh, gosh. And everybody around is trying to trip him up, is trying to bring him down. And his followers, this band of nobodies, 
of tax collectors and sinners and fishermen and nobodies that look a lot like us. They're just watching. They're beaming with pride as he just parries one assault away after another, and he makes everyone else look foolish, and he goes, you're going to see. Jesus isn't concerned with taxes, but tax collectors. He came for the far off, not for the righteous and religious. He came for the rejected and the sinner. He's riding through the sheep gate. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He is the unblemished lamb, the perfect spotless lamb chosen by God, the father of the family, to be brought in for the sacrifice and the covering of his people. For the one far from home, for the lost and broken, for the addicted and the afflicted, and the anxious heart and the soul at war, and the person going through personal trial and trauma right now. The person in this room who's going, he couldn't meet me in the darkest place I'm in. He couldn't find me in the valley, it's too deep. And he says, watch me. Riding in on a donkey, the Lamb of God comes to bring peace. He is a peace bringer for the soul at war. He is a peace bringer for the marriage on the rocks. He is a peace bringer for the anxious heart. He's coming to bring peace to you today, forever. And the danger is that we are hanging on to power and religion and we're missing the lamb along the way, that we have clung to causes and little side stories of what's happening in our world and we have forgotten that the point is Jesus. This is the peace that he came to fight for, is the one that you might see what is true and what is real, that you might cling to a hope beyond all others, that you might have a faith that saves. That's what he's here for. And he rides in for us today. He's riding in again in this season. As we look forward, Easter is not that far away. And we're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate a good Friday where the lamb was slain. We're going to celebrate a Sunday where he's resurrected. We're going to celebrate, but it's coming. He's coming into the gate and he's going, be ready because the day is coming. The urgency is here. The kingdom is upon us. The war between death and life and dark and light between heaven and earth. Jesus is coming to win that war once and for all. Revelation says, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the lamb. The lamb of God who rides in on the sheep gate. Jesus is the worthy lamb. His life was worthy to absorb the war inside of you. His life is worthy to present peace where there is only conflict. His death in your place was enough to open the door to life, to true life, to light over darkness. That life is yours, and he's offering it to you. And all it requires is you let go of all of the quibbling stuff, that you let go of all of the lesser things, that you let go of all of the idols that are competing for time and attention all those good things that want to be God things but can't quite hold that weight. Grabbing hold of life requires that we let go of death, doesn't it? You can't simultaneously hold two things like that. You have to let go so that you can grab hold of something new. You have to let go of death so you can grab life. You have to let go of religion so you can take on Jesus. You have to let go. You have to let go of the chase for stuff or status. Let go of power or consumption. Let go of the shame let go of the hidden sin that you think has disqualified you. Let go of the hidden sin that you think has disqualified you. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy. 
Not worthy unless you did this. Not worthy unless you think that. Not worthy unless your sin is on this list of things we really don't like. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Behold, the lamb of God comes to take away the sins of the world, including yours. So what's holding you back? What holds you back? What do you not want to let go of? What do you not want to release? What is the thing that Jesus is overturning in your life and he's going, this is holding you back from me? Because he's offering his life for you. And it is a daily choice for us to say, I'm not going to replace you with lesser things. Jesus, you are the only thing that saves me. What part of life do you need to let go of that you can take hold of the life he offers? Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.